Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Madam's Cast. I am, as usual, agog with excitement to chat to my guest this month. And my guest this month, um, unusually uh, for recent times, lives further north in the British Isles than I do. Um, which is very exciting and perhaps will give the eagle-eared listeners out there a clue as to who we're going to have a chat with. Um, This gentleman first sprang to my attention via the magic of Instagram, uh, at which point I purchased a copy of his book and was astonished to find such a broad range of lovely things in it and see it so well written. So before before I embarrass him far too much, I'm going to ask him if he's there and at the same time I'm going to try really hard to get his name right. <laughs> Kanyok, is, is that you? Are you the Hebridean baker? Uh, hello, Tim Falcher. It's as if you've lived in the Outer Hebrides your whole life. I, you said it perfectly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a relief. That is good. And how, and how are you today? And where are you? Uh, I am in the Outer Hebrides. Um, it is a beautiful day here, but I am actually packing my bags because I am heading of all places to Las Vegas um, this weekend uh, to be part of an event called IBIE, which is the largest baking expo in the world. I'm basically going to Las Vegas to teach 25,000 Americans how to bake scones. Can you believe it? <laughs> I am so happy for you. I'm a bit disappointed because <laughs> I thought you were going to say you were off to take part in the Elvis contest. <laughs> <laughs> That's on Tuesday. You're going to fit that in while you're there. Wow, Viva Las Vegas. That's really exciting. It, it is exciting. I, I, I'll be honest with you, Tim, and I know we'll chat through things, but I promise you every day I get the most wonderful emails and taking me on the most remarkable adventures, all because of the Hebridean Baker. And, um, you know, I'm trying to think, what was that movie? Was it Jim Carrey that said he would say yes to everything for a year? Was that oh, yeah, Jim yeah, it was, it was based <laughs> on a book by a British journalist, wasn't it? I can't remember right. his name now. It's gone out of my head, right out of well, my head. Yeah, well, I've sort of promised I would do the same this year and so far so good I haven't ended up in prison or on crime watch um, <laughs> but I've had the most remarkable experiences and adventures and long may that continue well and thank goodness that I picked the right time to email you when you were just saying yes to everything <laughs> that's tremendous oh well I'm, I'm very excited so oh, th- we're totally sidetracked already but I need to know will you be making tatty scones um, actually, do you know, um, there's a couple of things they've asked me to make and it just gives me a bit of a warm smile, um, what is very unique to a certain marketplace, in this case, America, compared to ours. So um, I'm doing two kind of, you know, those where you kind of, you're there doing that kind of celebrity chef style thing with all the people in front of you. So one, I'm making my new Bakewell scones which I have to say are just the most indulgent treat ever. Um, enhanced by um, grated marzipan. That is oh the secret gosh. ingredient to, to Bakewell scones. Um, so they, they, they were very excited about that one. But as you might know, Tim, um, some things 
just are a bit lost in translation. And in my first book, I had um, mincemeat cookies uh, um, uh, in, in my book. And the number of questions, you know what I'm going to say, yeah. um, was, is it beef mince or lamb mince in your mincemeat cookies? So I am going over to teach them the joys of mincemeat. And at the same time, and maybe Tim, this is one for our future chats, is why is mincemeat only a Christmas thing? For me, it should be a year-long celebration, yeah. um, but we're kind of tied into this fest festive kind of mincemeat concept. Yeah. So I'm going to give them the joys of, of classic British mincemeat. Well, will you be taking some Hebridean mutton suet with you? <laughs> Obviously. Excellent, excellent, excellent. That's Just to throw them but... completely. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's brilliant. Okay, so off to Las Vegas to make scones and it's Bakewell scones. So we've got a sort of hybrid between... Now, is Bakewell in Yorkshire? Where's Bakewell? Is Bakewell not in Derbyshire? Ah, well, um, there you go. See, I, I I'll be getting emails got that right. That. Okay. I think I've got that right. Um, but basically, it's um, one of my aunt's favorite um, cakes to eat. So I was inspired by um, getting uh, the wonderful kind of Mr. Kipling's classic Bakewell tarts um, in the co-op in Stornoway in the Isle of Lewis. Yeah. And I thought, how can I, how can I make a homemade version of this that'll make her smile? And this did, and uh, that that's kind of one of my benchmarks um, when I when I'm creating new dishes. Amazing, amazing. And you say Outer Hebrides. Now that for me is it's a really funny one because I only moved to um, Northeast Scotland. I'm over in Murray these days. I only moved here in 2020, and until then, if someone had said to me, "Oh, you're it's like being in the Outer Hebrides," I would have imagined it was this sort of bleak, desolate place, several days sail from shore, um, <laughs> and that has obviously changed since I've been living in Northeast Scotland because we feel a lot closer to these places. And I was really interested by the passage in your book where you talk, or in your first book, where you, you talk about the famous story of the lady chatting to the man um, and asking her whether she felt remote and her answer of remote from where. <laughs> yeah, I, I was it's... really charmed by that. And it sort of got me thinking about remote places are only remote if you're not near them. It's interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean... We definitely accept we're far away. <laughs> I mean, to put into context for your 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 listeners, um, the Isle of Lewis, which of course is the farthest north of the Outer Hebrides, we are closer to the south coast of Iceland than the south coast of England. Yeah. So that's a, a good reason why uh, we were part of Norway for for four hundred years, and and definitely still look north for a lot of our. Uh, influences, um, but we def we do try to not use the word remote. I know it's an easy word to use, and you know when we we're on travel shows or things like that, it mm. it makes us sound maybe exotic uh, to be remote. Um, but yes, I, I I do agree that we're far away. But um, I don't know if you've had the chance, Tim, since you moved to to visit. But genuinely, it is really one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I think anybody who visits will will come away with wonderful experiences and stories, be it about our food, our beaches, our culture, our language. We're definitely, we are, of course, part of Scotland, but 
we are a wee bit different. We do feel a wee bit different in the Hebrides. And I think what I'm enjoying now is that differences, like this funny accent you're hearing <laughs> at the moment, I think now are being celebrated more than they have ever been. And that makes me feel fantastic. Well, I'm using my posh podcasting voice, but if I if I wasn't, I'd be sounding a little bit more like I come from down Devon Way, whereas where I hail from, down Devon, southwest of England. Um, and I think everyone's voice sounds different until you're from there, and it's it's really interesting. Um, and just quickly then, so if you're the furthest north of the Outer Hebrides, I've got a feeling that the Isle of Gear is the furthest south. Well, so Gia is part of the Inner Hebrides, oh. uh, the, out, the Outers. Um, so there's a phrase from the Butt to Barra, uh, the Butt being the Butt of Lewis, which is the farthest north um, part of Lewis, oh. um, Barra and Vattersea being the most southerly inhabited islands of the Outer Hebrides. Okay. Um, so that's your kind of, um, we're like belly buttons. You've got the Innies and outies. So uh, <laughs> I'm an outie when it comes to being a Hebridean. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Um, okay, fantastic. Well, I, the only reason I thought I knew that, which it turned out I didn't know, uh, was that we had the guy from Gear Halibut Farm on the podcast a few months yeah. back, uh, yeah. which is a very interesting sustainable project I was quite uh, quite enamoured with. Anyway, Enough. Uh, well, one last little bit of Hebrides chat then. When we were in Orkney in the summer, yes, we were definitely in Orkney, not on Orkney. So are you in Lewis or on Lewis? Yeah, we're definitely on Lewis, okay. but in the Outer Hebrides. Right. Brilliant. Just to these, make it that extra confusion. Yeah, but it's these it's these nuances that people need to know. Let's be clear. That is a that's that's a pub quiz fact that's gonna win you something at it some is. point. Definitely. It is. But one thing I will say from that is you will definitely be on a Calmac ferry on the way to the Edge of Hebrides. And I actually love the um I do think, and I don't know how you go to Orkney, but that sense of adventure when you get on a ferry, yeah. much more tingly than you do when you get on a flight. You do feel like you're going on a big adventure when you're suddenly thinking, goodness, I'm on this ferry over these t kind of rough waters for the next three hours or, or five <laughs> hours yeah. uh, ahead. Um, so if you are visiting, definitely take that ferry. Yeah, well, we will. We will. I'm a big fan of going across the sea and when we did visit Orkney we certainly sailed out of Scrabster and went up that way um, uh, which is interesting if you're ever coming into Scrabster very good tapas bar at the port there which you might not expect to find called La Capella uh, in okay. the old church worth worth a, worth a stop for a croquetta and a, and a cold beer if you fancy it yeah Okay, right. Before we dive into the three things you want to change about the world of food, and I know they're going to be good because this is going so well, this chat already. Well, you know, from your point of view, it might not be so good. But from my point of view, I think it's great. You're, you're sounding brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, how, how did you invent the Hebridean Baker? How have you found yourself in this, in this place? Um, well, Tim, I mean, I've always been a passionate home baker mm -hmm. and I've always made sure that throughout all the adventures, as I call them, uh, of having my book and being on television and all these wonderful, amazing things, I've made sure that that's still what I call myself because that's really what it is. I want, I'm a passionate home baker and I want to make others 
as passionate uh, um, about Scottish flavors, uh, Scottish recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, but simply, um, I learned to bake from my mother and my aunts. And my Aunt Belak, uh, who lives in the next village, I'm from the village of Cromoor. Cromoor um, is the Gaelic for big cow. The next village is Crobig, which is the Gaelic for wee cow. And I remember <laughs> kind of growing up um, because Gaelic obviously is a mix of Gaelic and Old Norse. Mm-hmm. And these villages were named during Viking times. And I always was quite proud that the Vikings thought we had bigger cows than the, <laughs> than the next village. Um, <laughs> but my aunt is from Maravik, uh, which is the next village. And... Um, we were just sitting by our stove one day and she was making uh, what on the mainland is called clouty dumpling. I'm sure you've heard of that, Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the island, we call it a duff in Gaelic. And um, my aunt was known around the village for having the best the best duff. And so I was just asking her when was the first time she made this recipe. And she said she's been making it the same way for 80 years <laughs> yeah. 80 years and actually it was her it was her anniversary her husband's 95 it was her wedding anniversary that day which had been 70 years previous and she had made this for her own wedding cake that morning so we were telling these stories and talking about traditions on the island and i thought to myself i want to make sure that people on my island don't forget about these wonderful recipes and stories and that was really the the inspiration to start creating content um as the hebridean baker um but i think now i've had (laughs) 21 million people watch my uh videos and i definitely know Seeing there's only 30 people in my village, I definitely know that means <laughs> there's some other people watching them. Um, and so the fact that it's it's resonated, the storyline of the Hebrides and the Hebridean Baker has resonated around the world mm. is, is a humbling experience, but just makes me so proud. Well, you should be proud of that. And I and I think I think it's part of a wider story, actually. I think it's part of or maybe I just hope it's part of, but I, I feel like it's part of people's desire to turn backwards and realize mm. what's important again and maybe connect. I mean, I don't want to use the term mindfulness, it's overdone, but you know, reconnect with those simple pleasures in life that aren't about earning the most money. They're not about having the shiniest car. They're about sitting down around a cooker with some people you care about and taking some time. Uh, well, it's, think, a good, it's a good think... point, Tim. Yeah. I mean, uh, funny enough, I did. Uh, do you remember a few years ago, there was that real phenomenon of hygge, you know, the Danish uh, kind of sense of, of, of life, as you say, being able to slow down and, and enjoy. Mm. I was doing a Danish radio show and um, the presenter asked me, was there a Gaelic translation for the word hygge? And when you're doing podcasts or radio shows and you get pitched a question, you do have to react quite quickly sometimes. <laughs> so I kind of pondered it, but I actually thought, yes, there is a, a word that we would use. And there's this beautiful word in Gaelic called blas. 
And balas is the word for contentment and warmth. And there's a lovely saying in Gaelic, um, Betty Blas Erloas, which is, uh, translates as, there's a time for everything. In other words, just slow down, enjoy the things you like to do. And that, through the past few years, has absolutely been my kind of mantra in life is, as I said, say yes to the fun things and yeah. just enjoy it. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I, I can see you're going to have to be careful. You've got these 21 million people watching your videos. You could very easily start some sort of Hebridean cult here. You've got to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's next year's book. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. Right. Wow. Well, I could just chat to you about um, your story and your beautiful book that you've created, of which I'm delighted to see that there's some some cocktails and some um, and some not only baking recipes, but some some nice lunch dishes and some soups and bits and pieces as well. I'm very old fashioned. I pick up a book with Baker written on the front and I assume it's going to be full of bread and cakes. And then I'm always surprised when there's interesting stuff in there. And my, my um, not interesting stuff, more more diverse stuff. Um, a friend of mine, Mark Diacono, does the same thing. He'll, he'll write a book about spice and I assume that it's going to be full of recipes for curry and this, that and the other. And it'll open with a cocktail and a this and a that. And I just think, ah, oh, it's amazing how people are so much... Uh, so much more broad-minded about their subject matter these days. I, I, think I it's, hope so. It's fascinating. I hope so. Well, it's, I anyway, really enjoyed. I really enjoyed making the the recipe list. So yeah, hope people enjoy it. They're they're brilliant. They're really good. They're really diverse. They're really interesting. Uh, I like the the look of the no more rum and raisin ice cream. What was that called? Chocolate? Is it chocolate and whiskey? Uh, the yeah, there's some. I, I must admit, I do like a good ice cream mm. recipe. That's for sure. There's a new one in the new book. I'll tell you about too. That uh, is a bit of a taste sensation. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, right. So, um, just lastly, anyone who hasn't seen the book, The Hebridean Baker, or the new book that should be out by the time this um podcast goes live, uh, it's quite frankly, and this is no, this is no slur on the beautifully written recipes and content within the book but it's worth it just for the photographs quite frankly um if this book doesn't make <laughs> you hungry and want to move immediately to the outer hebrides uh i don't know what will there there is a lot of photos of me looking wistful in my kilt on top of heather top maidens i feel like do you remember that scottish widow's advert of the lady <laughs> in the cloak? i kind of feel like the hebridean version of that lady kind of just um, a cross between her and maybe Kate Bush, just like, you know, uh, hiking around Wuthering Heights. So um, so if you're into that, then this is definitely, definitely the book for you. Oh, you're hilarious. It is brilliant. Um, it's a great book. Right. OK, no more, no more tittle tattle. Let's find out <laughs> what three things you would like to change about the world of food. So the Madam's Cast is based around this central part of the story, which is we get to have a chat about three things you would like to change about the world of food. And they can be as broad reaching, as ethical, as simple and futile as you like. They can be anywhere on that spectrum. It's entirely up to you where you go with it. And I can't wait to hear what your three are. So can you can you start with number one for us? Um, well, I think this will create a bit of conversation between us, Tim, because uh, when I was considering this, and as you say, I was thinking, when I wrote them down first, are these too simple or uh, or not? But one thing, um, I was at a, a restaurant just um, a few days ago on the Isle of Lewis. It's a beautiful restaurant called Uig Sands, like 
wonderful, wonderful experience I had. And when I left, or when we left the restaurant, myself and, and Peter, um, I realized that what we were talking about, even though the food was spectacular, what we were talking about was the staff, the people in the restaurant. Mm. Um, and I realized that this happens a lot from a positive as well as unfortunately from a, a, a negative perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are fundamental to the enjoyment of your food experience. Um, be that when the chef came out to say hello, which just warmed my heart that that the chef would, would do that um, to make sure that the guests were enjoying their meal. Uh, to the staff kind of understanding that they are part of the experience. And unfortunately, I think in in many circumstances, the staff maybe don't under, don't realize that they are such a big part of the food experience when you you go to a takeaway or when you you dine um, in a restaurant. And I don't know what you feel, Timothy, if you feel the same way. But it, for me, it can enhance the experience so much. It'll be one of the core reasons to to return. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can get back to understanding that people make food in the simplest possible way, um, that I think people will enjoy the experience a lot more. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm 100% with you, actually. And one of my catchphrases uh, over the years has been, it's called the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. need to be hospitable. And that is definitely overlooked now we've got to caveat some of this chat i think because right now uh there are no staff hospitality as an industry across the vast majority of the united kingdom is stuttering there are hundreds of independent restaurants going to the wall right now uh because of the cost of operating those businesses and because of staff shortages you're so, absolutely right and i think that's why i think that's why i kind of wanted to bring this up because how do we make this industry aspirational how do we make the food industry the hospitality industry uh, uh, a, a business where young people want to get into and want it to be a, a lifelong industry for them mm. and i think and I'm not trying to compare the U.S. from the point of view of the the, the wage structure, yeah. but certainly um, I compared it to the longevity of people I know who have stayed in the industry, um, even from the, the 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 kind of waiting service industry. You know, you get people who that's their career, and I'm not sure if people in the U.K. really see it as a career as just a short term opportunity. Um, and unfortunately, right, I think it's been exacerbated by the challenges we're currently facing and the lack of staff and cost as a result. So I think we do need to think of a solution rather than just accepting um, this is a, a, a problem. Because um, I said, the ones that get it right, oh my goodness, they really get it right. Yeah, and even that yeah. night, I was thinking, I want to work. I want to work here, <laughs> yes, you know, yes. I want to spend my time with these amazing waiting staff and making the beautiful cocktails and they're so happy and smiling and interested. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm not saying I have the solution, Tim, but it's certainly no, no. a challenge that we need because we need good people in our industry 
Um, oh, and yeah. we need to create that experience that people would want to do that. Yeah, absolutely we do. And, I, you know, I think there's a huge, huge subject there. But for me, practical boots on the ground. And before I go into that, I have to say I completely agree with you. Um, whenever I have the opportunity to go to Rockpool in Inverness, uh, I will always go there as much to have a chat with the waiters and have the food explained to me as to enjoy the dining experience, which is fantastic. But it is the hospitality on offer there that brings me back time and again yes. as much as the food. So I totally get where you're going with that. And other restaurants do that incredibly well. St. John's in London. Uh, you walk in there, you immediately feel like you're part of something very special. And that's an interesting one because you, it's not it's not a particularly smart place. It has a style, but it's not that formal kind of service. So I think it's a slightly ethereal thing to define anyway. But great places are all about great people. Mm. And I think what you have to do as a as a if you're a restaurant owner or restaurant manager or a head chef or a shift manager or something like that, at a funky hospitality venue where you have got good staff and good retention, it is all about the fact that you put in the middle of those businesses, people that refuse to tolerate negativity mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Everyone has bad days. We all wake up sometimes feeling grumpy and that's okay. You know, particularly if you were working till one o'clock last night and you've got to work <laughs> early in the morning, that, that goes with the territory. That's part of it. But the ability to, to sort of take that on board and go, okay, well, that's fine. But now I'm at work and people are starting to arrive. It's all going to just be great. And that then makes you feel better. So it might start as an act, but it then becomes self-fulfilling prophecy and you get a buzz out of delivering great hospitality and making people happy but I for me I think it's really a case of the bad apple syndrome if you've got a bad apple in that barrel particularly if it's near the top of one of the departments no matter how painful it's going to be for your business you have to get that apple and either stop it being a bad apple uh, by offering it improvement techniques or making it you know relax a little bit or finding out what the problems are or I'm sorry to say you have to get rid of that bad apple because otherwise all of your good apples will either become bad apples. This analogy is running out of legroom. Um, but they'll, they'll either <laughs> There's a lot of bad, apples. They'll either become bad apples or they'll, or they'll fall from the tree entirely. Um, there we go. Well, so what that's I would say, where I am. Yeah, yeah, what I would say, Tim, I mean, I was very fortunate to work in kind of retail for a, a, a long time. And um, again... I'm doing a wee bit of a sweeping generalization, but mm -hmm. uh, in many circumstances, it does come from uh, either a lack of training or f from, uh, from the top. You can train good customer service. Mm -hmm. And if you create that yourself, you know, uh, when I worked in retail, I would always make sure that if a customer came into the store, even if I or one of the other uh, staff were busy, that they would be acknowledged. Uh, you would stand up, because uh, it was a seated environment, you would stand up and just say, hi, madam, just take a seat, it won't be too long. Mm -hmm. Or if you were the first one in the store, you were welcomed, you were smiled, uh, smiled at, engaged straight away, all small things. Uh, one thing, um, actually, I was chatting to um, the Edra Hebrides Tourist Board about this, about 
could that is that something that they could actually do training on mm. because we have of course now in the Outer Hebrides it's very you know everything is relative but it's certainly more multicultural than it has been ever before um, and but at the same time we are the center of the Gaelic language everybody can learn the word falcha for welcome and so just imagine if in every store restaurant cafe that you walked into in the Outer Hebrides, they went, Falche, welcome. How wonderful that would be. And that doesn't take much to, to, to learn or, yeah. or, um, or, or to educate. And it's these small things that can make a difference. And as I said, um, I think staff are such an important part. And I would just love people to think of the hospitality industry, the service industry as a, a lifelong passion. Mm-hmm. And so what do we need to do to make that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, there's some obvious things that spring to mind. Um, decent pensions, better working yeah. structures, shorter working hours, uh, better pay. And ultimately, that will all have to come from a, a, a slight change in ethos of business ownership. I think a, a, an increase probably in the, the real sort of monetary cost of going out to do these things because I think they've been subsidized by cheap food production over the years and actually that's no longer the case um, and I think we could you know we could go on with a list of stuff but I think if we took as a basic toolkit when you find someone talented come into your business someone that's ex- that's positive and excited nurture them train them give them the tools give them the bravery to stand up to the people that are being negative and mm. allow that to blossom now it's easy to say as a man that's now sworn off restaurants uh, <laughs> which are which are all consuming and bad for me and i have probably been guilty of being a, a bad apple at times as well um you know i think it's easier sometimes to stand on the outside and see what's wrong but uh, i think lots of clever people are listening and talking and thinking about this there's a podcast by Mark Cribb called The Humans of Hospitality, which is a really interesting investigation into that and many other subjects. Um, but the monetary one is really difficult. How do you pay people more and look after them better without increasing your profit margin? It's a hard yeah, one, isn't point. it? Mm. Good point. Anyway, one thing's for sure, we've been talking about the staffing shortage in hospitality for at least 25 years, and it has got a lot worse since then, not better. So, But one thing that is true is, and I bet this place that you uh, are talking about on Lewis, where you went to the restaurant, I bet they have no problem with staff retention. So there are these places, these diamonds, that seem to always have enough staff, always seem to be positive, always seem to manage to survive. And I think that's a credit to the creative, smart manager slash owners that run those businesses as much as it is to their teams, because the temptation to cut corners must be huge and they never do. They always stick with what they know is the best thing long term. Uh, and, And my hat's off to them, basically. Agreed amazing wow um so much i mean i could all we could almost unpack that and get three points out of it but we will we'll (laughs) we'll move on um and i'm very uh could you just give me the name of that restaurant again because i tried to write it down and i clearly had no idea how to spell it ah so you have to go it's called uig 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 sands uh, as in sands as in the beach and you walk in and it has this full glass fronted um window uh, onto the beach at Timsgarry 
Um, and the chef there, Seamus McDonald, has created a, a, a beautiful menu out of Hebridean flavors mm-hmm. uh, and produce. Um, and I was completely wowed by the whole experience. And it really was an experience mm-hmm. um, that I definitely encourage uh, everybody to, to visit. I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> uh, I, I would be on my way. Uh, only I need to finish this podcast first. Okay. <laughs> so, um, okay. So I've given number one uh, the title of "Great Places Are About Great People." Brackets discuss positivity, train, and welcome folk in. Um, that will all pan out into some useful show notes for me later on at some point, I'm sure. But we must move on. The time is ticking past. And point number two awaits us. So what is the second thing that you would like to change about the world of food? Um, well, funny enough, it sort of um, sticks to the restaurant theme a little bit again. And um, I'm just going to call it menus um, because, uh, again, um, through my kind of lucky experience of, of being to, to restaurants and cafes and, and delis and uh, bakeries over these years is I always appreciate, uh, I, I use a phrase maybe too much, less is more. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- when I get to a restaurant and the, the, the menu is one page, it absolutely delights me. Yeah. As opposed to <laughs> you get to the restaurant and you're, you know, you're on page seven, you know, trying to find kind of what's going on. And it's so, I mean, I think I'm reasonably good at making decisions, but you know, when I go to a restaurant and I see such choice, I start to question, you know, can they be experts? You know, as a jack of all trades, master, master of none. Mm. Um, And I definitely appreciate, not just in restaurants, I think that's the most obvious because you see the menu. Um, but now when I go to um, a cafe and they just make five things fantastically well. Like, yeah. um, one of my favorite places to, to go again on the island uh, for, a, for a coffee and a cake is the um, cafe at the uh, Isle of Harris Distillery in Tarbert, oh, um, nice. which I often pop to to get uh, the gin. It's good um, gin. It is good it's gin, people. Great gin. The Barragin. The Barragin is also very good, uh, yes. but but the Harris gin is, it, for me, is probably and more even just for that palette. beautiful bottle as well, oh, which yeah, um, is, is amazing. But their cafe is lovely. It's run by a lovely lady called Irene, and uh, she has this concept where. Um, she just she, well not just because it's 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 a lot of work but she makes four cakes and a scone uh, type you know each day and they're different and it's a different experience every day but you're not inundated by oh my goodness I have to choose from from so many yeah and so that you can sense the care in those menus that when they're only two to three starters or four mains. And I feel more motivated by them because I know that the chef will have really thought about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think it's a, a trend that is growing and I'm quite inspired by that. And I think I kind of applaud chefs who feel confident enough uh, or bakers or uh, people in Delhi who are confident enough to choose things and think, I know that my guests will love 
um, these flavors, love these recipes. And I, I don't know about you, Tim, but it gives me more confidence that I'm going to get the best when I go to, um, uh, as I said, a restaurant or a cafe that has that concept. Yeah, I couldn't, I absolutely couldn't agree with you more. The, it, the, the innate honesty of it, I think, is what attracts me. And it's very comforting when you get a menu that's one page long and it's full of things that are in season and they're not described as nestling on a bed or drizzled <laughs> with. Um, uh, drizzled with always upsets me. I'm sort of like, well, drizzle is a type of, sort of ambiguous rain that can't quite decide if it's going <laughs> to do itself or not. It's a bit, yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not one for over flowery language. In fact, I, I sort of tend to tune out even the ats and withs and ands in my menus. But um, I, I think it is that simplicity. It's a simple thing to choose from a list of a few and it's very honest and you have this strong sense that it's going to be real and fresh yeah is it perception or is that true as in i i i i, I the moment i see it i think this chef knows what he's talking about he wants he wants us to see the best of what he has as opposed to what's in the freezer that he can reheat yeah. i have this kind of worry that if the menu is too big there has to be some type of backup that makes it less fresh, I guess. But um, is it just me or I don't know, is, is, do, do other people feel that way? Well, I think I, I certainly feel that way. I avoid anywhere which um, which has a longer menu, uh, but specifically for the reason that I am alarmed and that to have that many things available, they're clearly not all fresh. Um and and I think that the food service industry or the supplier food service industry has quite a bit of uh, a bit of uh, responsibility for that. A lot of a lot of places have been plugged into these suppliers for a long time, and they just take what they're pushed at them. But um, yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think if you've got the respect and the understanding to create a menu like that, then you've got the bravery to present it in that way because you're not fussed uh, about some people not getting it because it's the people that get it that you want to come. Or the people that I are brave so. enough to say, I don't really understand this, but I'm going to give it a go. Yes, yes. So everybody out there, less is more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that. Totally with you on that. Um, I, I, but I would caveat that with uh, that that needs to change, you know, and, and that's the nice thing about those places is you go in the next day and three of the dishes have changed. Absolutely, yeah, for sure, and it, it it might segue into my next my my oh. number three, but but oh. definitely um, again this perception that as a result you are getting um, something that's fresh or different. Though I have to say, I used to go to uh, uh, when I moved to Glasgow uh, as a student. Um, there is a place called the CC, CCA. It's uh, at the time it was uh, vegetarian. I think it's now vegan, but it's a center of contemporary arts. Uh -huh. And they had a really great cafe there that I used to go to every Friday night. And I would have the same meal there every Friday. When I find a restaurant that I love, yeah. when I find a meal that I love, I can eat that no problem <laughs> every <laughs> night um i remember going to um the island of skiathos in greece for example oh, yeah, and there's yeah. a beautiful restaurant in um i'm gonna call it a windmill but you know you know those kind of greek I'm with you. yeah 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 kind of yeah. things you see and it was there on the top of the top of the hill and um i'm sure that uh, 
other what did they say other nice restaurants are available in Seattle but I was like no I love it now I don't want to be disappointed I know I'm going to love it if I go there and so all seven nights we went to the same restaurant so I am also a total creature of habits uh, so that kind of balances out this new creativity of, of, of things I'm, I'm looking for but again it was all down to a lovely menu um Great staff. All the things we've talked about so far just entice me so much to to visit again. And you got to go and check out the contemporary arts afterwards. Oh, I, I, yeah, exactly. Not that I um I don't know how. Well, I don't know what what's the what's the opposite of uncouth. I don't know how couth I am when it comes to art. Um, but uh, I definitely know a good restaurant. Yeah, well, look, I think the two are quite closely related. Actually, a lot of uh, a lot of foodie people I know are very uh what I would call arty designery type folk as well they've got nice furniture if you know what I mean and Mm -hmm. um, their house Mm -hmm. is not painted magnolia Uh, and (laughs) and I think if you are the kind of person that stops and thinks about the things that you eat then you will stop and contemplate something that you've seen as well or something a piece of poetry or something um and I think that the two go together more often than people realize but that might just be because it works for me. <laughs> no, I decided that it's a general rule. Okay, yeah, I think, yeah, that, okay, so you're right. You caught me out there because I did say I like it when the menu changes. But then uh, with your story of Greece, I was like, oh, that's quite interesting because when we used to go to Cyprus, we would always go to the same place called the Last Castle up in the hills. And all they did there was barbecue pork that they cooked over wood and they served wine in flagons. And you had grapes from the ceiling above you, the, the veranda above you for pudding. And that was it, you know, baked potatoes. That sounds the dream. Grilled pork. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was pretty awesome, I uh, have to say. Uh, <laughs> and then another place called the Secret Garden, where they that was there was just this sort of, um, you know, sort of late middle-aged couple who just cooked for you. And I loved that. There was no menu there at all. You just walked in, sat down. They kept bringing you little dishes of delicious stuff until you'd had enough. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Okay, well, I've stolen uh, the conversation. I need to give it back to you. So <laughs> now be careful because this is the last one and you don't get like a, you don't get to wish for more wishes uh, on this one. You only get, third, <laughs> you get to change your third thing about the world. There's no substitutions, is there? No, no. Although people seem to manage to cram about nine things into one point these days. But that's, <laughs> that's okay. I'm, I'm very laid back about it. Um, what is the third and final thing that you would like to change about the world of food? Um, well, um, it probably was inspired by a lot of what I did yesterday. If you could see my hands right now, or particularly my nails, you'd be like, what have you been doing? Um, and what I have been doing all day yesterday was um, picking brambles, ah. uh, picking wild blackberries, because they are absolutely perfectly in season right now and i over the next few days will be making enough um rowan and bramble jelly to keep everybody in my family going for the next (laughs) next six months and my kind of point here is about seasonality but also about foraging and um people realizing what is literally on their doorstep and available and kind of I I can see and I just wish people would take advantage of it more Um, and 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 I think this is a a lot down to uh, food education um, and 
yes, sometimes it's hard work. My arms are ripped to shreds <laughs> from all the thorns yeah. in these bushes. But this, the sense of um, value of, of doing that all day yesterday and having this unbelievable bounty of, of fruit, which I didn't pay for apart from in my hard labor, just fills me with joy. And um, I, I think I've sometimes also been um, conscious of doing this myself, going to a, a supermarket, looking for a produce and going, ah, oh, why isn't this available? Yeah. But then should, you know, should it be available at that time? And, you know, I, um, for me, you know, in this, in the kind of spring or late springtime, uh, wild garlic and wild leek, it's, it's a big thing that, that we use uh, to flavor a lot of our dishes yeah. at that time. Um, I think the soft fruit that we have in Scotland is the best, like really is the best. Um, yeah. And it just doesn't take much. I'm talking about foraging. I'm talking about um, growing your own. Uh, Peter, my partner, has his own gardening show on BBC Alba called Gara Fadrig. And it's really about... S- small holdings of gardens so even just having a bag to always grow potatoes each year and actually the, the best potatoes we had last year i found a bag of i think we had gone to tesco like <laughs> that and just forgotten about a, a bag of wee potatoes and so we just planted them yeah. and got the most amazing crop probably got like a hundred potatoes from a from some leftover like three or four uh wee potatoes that we had left so all this for me comes to um food education food knowledge and um how and when should this be taught uh be it in school or in adulthood um but i just hope that again we're coming into times which people will find more challenging um how do we solve that with the natural produce that we have around us yeah yeah uh, and and i think um there's a lot of points there you've done exactly what uh, everybody else does which is <laughs> <laughs> squeeze quite a few into the last one which is totally fine and, and completely allowable and I've, i find nothing to argue with you on there which is which is quite nice i i think it's as simple as taking the kids blackberrying you know, I, I think it's as simple as letting them mm-hmm. dig up the potatoes. I think it's then a case of, yes, we need to improve what's happening at school. I've never, or for a long time, I've wondered why uh, in most schools now have a garden where they show children how to grow things. But half the school should be a garden. Everything that, they, you know, 50% of what they're eating in the school meals should be produced, you know, at the school. It should, you know, unless it's a vegan school, they should have... Uh, a couple of goats and some some pigs and they should yeah. you know this whole thing of understanding where your food comes from well you can't expect children to just know where the food comes from unless you show them we're so far removed in so many ways from food production these days and i think you're right i think picking some nettles picking some wild garlic cooking with it talking about it bringing that into your home and sharing it with they might not be your children they might be your neighbor's children or your sister's children or some friends children but taking that time to talk to them about it and letting them pick some you know all humans learn in that way 
I'm hopeless. I'm trying to learn to play guitar, right? And my guitar teacher <laughs> will tell you that starting at 41 was probably not a good choice and that I am almost impossible to teach to read music. My brain just doesn't work in that way, but he's, he's persevering, bless him. But once he shows me something or we sit and play it together, I can pick it up. Not, not brilliantly. I'm not claiming to be a good guitarist here, but I can start to get my head around it much more quickly. And I just think lots of people learn in different ways. And if, if we have a broader understanding of food and if we have fresh food in the house and we cook more at home and we are less reliant on global megacorp to pump us through a full of God knows what, I'm hoping there's not a lot of fast food outlets in the Outer Hebrides. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think if we can just bring real food back uh, and, and get people to interact with it, then they very quickly switch on to it. They do. And the reward is unbelievable. Like the sense of achievement when you grow rhubarb, for example, yeah. Yeah. or carrots that aren't wonky or wonky. I don't mind wonky carrots. Um, all those things are the sense of achievement of that is fantastic. So as I said, that is, you're right, it is a bit of a doubler where I'm talking about just growing your own herbs or or some vegetables or having, uh, even if it's one tree, make it a, a fruit tree um, mm. that, that you'll have in your garden that, you know, in two, three years time, you're going to have the most amazing experience of seeing, well, I was going to say all the fruit, but um, this year, we have some very, very fat uh, squirrels. That's what I would say. Down, we have a small garden down um, where Peter's from in Oban, and we had plum trees. And I took a video of them showing Peter. There must have been 100 plums in this tree. And then I was back the week after. I said, oh, I, I noticed that you had harvested the plums. And he's like, no, I didn't. <laughs> and then we realized that um, we are very popular in the squirrel community of Auburn okay. um, because they, <laughs> they basically took every single one. Um, but uh, the experience of that is fantastic. And, and again, you, of course, you have to be a little bit careful and uh, knowledgeable with foraging. But in most circumstances, asking people around, or if you see somebody foraging, yeah. ask them what they're doing and, and how they're doing it. So. Yeah, absolutely. But never ask a mushroom forager where where to go. There's nothing that, that annoys them more. There's nothing that annoys them more. But um, yeah, absolutely right. And uh, so you mentioned wild garlic. Wild garlic for me is one of those sort of. It for me, it was a real ah oh, moment. I sort of suddenly got a whole load of stuff about food when I realised why I like wild garlic so much. And it's because I've been eating quite seasonally in the restaurants I've been working in, and by the spring, by the late spring, when the wild garlic's starting to show its face. You are desperate for some green, vibrant, chlorophyll-laden goodness and some flavour that isn't kale or parsnips. You know, you're sort of done with <laughs> kale and parsnips come February. And uh, and I think for me, I used to make this, or still make this vibrant green wild garlic soup. And people look at you and they go, a garlic soup? I go, trust me, trust me, guys. You're going to love it. Try yeah. it, try it, try it. Yes. What's your, what's your go-to wild garlic recipe just before we wander off into the into the next oh bit. well uh nearly we're back to scones again wild garlic scones oh. oh my goodness the the fragrance when they come out warm out of the oven yeah. um really spectacular so uh, that's my that's my go-to amazing brilliant well circular conversation how tremendous is that um wow 
so <laughs> I feel like I could chat to you forever, but I know that the, the <laughs> clock is ticking. Your limo is waiting outside to take you to your, <laughs> your PJ and, and zip you off to the other side of the Atlantic. So I mustn't keep you for too long. But you have got three remaining tasks. If you would like to nominate someone as a future guest on the Madam's Cast, I would like you to do so. They can be alive, dead, real, fictitious, historical, futuristic, uh, however you like to go with that. I would also like you to suggest a book, a food book that you might have. If you could only have one food book, what would it be? And what would you have to drink whilst you were reading it? Those are your three remaining tasks. Tackle them in any order you like and go (laughs) wherever you want with them. Well, um, I was very lucky as part of um, the release of the Hebridean Baker cookbook that the, the book has been had a global release. And um, in America, it just it was great. It went down really well in the US. And my publishers asked me to go over and do a US book tour. I did a tour of 12 cities in 13 days. Oh, my goodness. We had one day off, and it was in Nashville. Oh. And I love Nashville. I'm a big country music fan. Yeah, me too. And the food experience in Nashville was phenomenal. Like it really was. I was lucky enough. There's a great uh, New York restaurant called The Dutch. Um, they've just opened uh, a Nashville outlet. And um, fortunately, again, I was able to meet the chef, uh, the head chef there. And the experience of uh, having that Tennessee twist on classic American food was for me very inspirational. And again, kind of reminded me of my storyline, which is wholesome, hearty dishes that people want to just absolutely devour. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe people don't think of Tennessee as, as a foodie destination, but it absolutely is. And so who is the queen of Tennessee, but Dolly Parton. And I think being able to talk to Dolly Parton about her love of food, what a dream that would be. So I hope that dream comes through true for you, Tim. Well, there's a, there's a, okay. So there's a guy, there's a story about this because there's a guy called, and if you're into your folk music, you'll know this. There's a guy um, uh, called, hang on, hang on. My brain's gone completely blank. Anyway, he's making a tribute to uh, a guy that's very good at banjo and the guy is starting to die and he turns round uh, <clears throat> to this guy and he says, oh, I want you to get Dolly. And he said, mm-hmm. what do you mean get Dolly? She's never heard of you or nothing. He says, I don't care, get Dolly. So <laughs> Arlo Guthrie, who's making this uh, tribute yeah. record, he goes off and he writes to Dolly, he says, dear Dolly, you've never heard of me. Let me introduce you to someone else you don't know. And anyway, two weeks later, he gets a letter back. She goes, hey, Arlo, love your stuff. I'd like, to, I'd like to do it. And and she turned up and she took part in this amazing tribute to this other musician. And, wow. you know, so she's got precedent. There's precedent. Maybe if I write to her nicely and say, hey, Dolly Parton, uh, my name's Tim Adams. You don't know me, <laughs> but you've been nominated <laughs> by this other guy. Um, <clears throat> would you come you on don't the podcast? Know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she'd come on. That would be amazing. I think there's some it? good there's some good karma. So that's definitely that's definitely one to add to your your invitation list. Yeah, for sure. it's there. It's there. I've got it. And <laughs> I've just remembered the name of the guy that the tribute was to as well. It was a guy called Daryl Adams who was known as the band. Okay. Uh, worth looking yeah. up actually. I think Billy Connolly's on that um, that album as well. Oh, but wow. 
Uh, anyway, I've totally well, digressed there. So that's your <laughs> that's your nomination. We should have Dolly Parton on the pod. There we go. That would be a good one. Um, as for the book, yeah. well, um, I pondered this because uh, there's one for me that's that's for me nearly obvious. Um, but I just I can swayed for a second. Um, there is. Uh, I'm obviously going to encourage a, a Scottish cookbook. Yes. And there is one I'm going to choose, but I'm going to tell you about one more. There was a lady called, um, well, she called herself Mrs. Dalgans. Her name was Catherine Emily Dalgans. She was actually um, born in Prince Edward Island in Canada, but to um, Scottish parents. And she wrote, well, I don't know if I'll call it a Scottish cookbook, but it came from Scottish heritage of her family, and it's called The Practice of Cookery. This is 1829. Um, she wrote this, and in her cookbook, she had 1,434 recipes. <laughs> Good for her. Good for her. And, I mean, I had 75, and that nearly killed me. Um, so... <laughs> So that was pretty impressive. And actually, in um, my second book, I have one of her recipes in in my book. But I'm still choosing my favorite Scottish cookbook, which which is the 1929 F. Marion McNeil book, The Scots Kitchen. And again, what she did is, I mean, I can't compare it to what she did, but she very much... Uh, in the late 1920s realized that people were were losing some traditions of recipes and stories and just went around Scotland building this wonderful book of traditional recipes that I look at all the time. So F. Marion McNeil's The Scots Kitchen. Right, I am all over that. I love an old recipe book. I have one um, called by, by a woman called Barbara Hammond called... Um, Practical cookery. Is it called practical cookery? It's downstairs. I can't remember. But um, I've come out of my office to record this in a quieter room and it's not it's not stood next to me. But I 100% with you. I think that older books like that are well worth looking at and say that you've given me, annoyingly, you've given me two. That I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to go and hunt them down. I'm not sure I'll be able to find um, the one from 1829, but 1929 is a little, bit, uh, a little bit stronger. So we might be able to find that one. Well, they Definitely. sound like great recommendations. And while you're perusing these, I'm imagining you sitting by an open fire in your kilt with your dog and you are going to worry. I mean, what are you going to drink while you're flicking through that for inspiration? <laughs> well, um, I heart back to, to last year when I was invited on to uh, Kirsty Allsop's Christmas show, of all things. Nice. Again, as I said, I get asked to do the most remarkable things. Yeah. And so I went down to her house down in Devon. And uh, Kirsty is a real connoisseur of whiskey. Oh, okay. And so she asked me as part of the program, um, you know, to, for us to make a cocktail together. And so in my book, I, I call it a Hebridean Hogmanay cocktail, but um, it's not just for Hogmanay. You really can have it at any time of year. Um, but what was interesting, the, the ingredients are very simple. I love a cocktail that only has one alcohol in it because, you know, when you get a, a recipe for a cocktail and say gin, yes, yeah. um, and then I'll say creme de something yeah. <laughs> and I'm like I don't have that you know <laughs> so I like it when there's just one so uh Hebridean Hogmanay cocktail you get your favorite herbal tea like a like say like a black currant like a fruit a dark uh-huh. fruit tea uh-huh. 
you infuse, you put in three tablespoons of marmalade in and stir that around until it infuses and cools. Um, Then you get your shaker. You're going to get a double dram of whiskey, um, clementine juice because it's a kind of festive drink. I love clementine juice. And then a pour of the kind of the the marmalade infused tea and then drink that as a chill drink. And it's a taste sensation. But when myself and Kirsty were doing this on the show, she likes a peaty whiskey. So she likes a good, strong Isla whiskey. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm more on the kind of Jura softer side mm-hmm. of the Hebridean whiskies. Mm-hmm. And so the test was who who had the base the best whiskey. And um credit to, to Kirsty, even though she did love her uh PT Isla Hogmanay cocktail, she did admit that my Jura whiskey um Hebridean Hogmanay cocktail was the best. And so that for me has the kind of warmth of the whiskey that sharpness, which I think you need in a, in a kind of whiskey cocktail to contrast it. Yeah, yeah. So that, that would be my go-to when I'm reading my, my Scott's Kitchen Cookbook. Oh, it sounds really great. I'm, I mean, it is, what time is it? It's just gone 10 o'clock in the morning. Perfect time. <laughs> On a Perfect Wednesday, time. ideal Perfect whiskey time. time. <laughs> <laughs> well, living in Speyside, as I do, we've got a few malts kicking around here. Um, so I might I might have to have a bit of a go at that later in, later in the week. It reminds me of a cocktail a friend of mine made the other week, actually, where um, there's a, a, speaking of foraging, there's a, a plant that they call pineapple weed, which is very much a, um, a chamomile type plant and so but it has this real smell of um of pineapple about it and she made a cocktail using a syrup made from that and some nice whiskey and that was incredible like scottish tropics she called it it was really really good yeah yeah very very different but that whole tea in a cocktail thing works quite well i'm quite interested with that um marvelous wow cannot believe it can we've come (laughs) so far in such a short period of time um, where can we Las find out Vegas, more about Las Vegas, Tennessee, you? and that. <laughs> well, you're off. To, I cannot believe you're off to Las Vegas. That is so exciting. <laughs> that is so exciting. Um, and uh, right, so tell me. Uh, lastly, before I let you go, uh, can you please tell us how we find out more about you? Where do we follow you? Uh, I know you're on Instagram as the Hebridean Baker. Are you on Twitter? Have you got a Facebook page? What's your website? And when's your new book coming out? And where can we get it? Yeah, so uh, for you Instagram folk, Hebridean Baker, all one word on Instagram. TikTok is where it all started, and that's where most of my recipes are. Um, So on TikTok at Hebridean Baker, uh, you will find hundreds of of videos there, recipes and stories and and Gaelic lessons and things. So lots of little one-minute videos to to keep you going. Um, And my new book, which is The Hebridean Baker, My Scottish Island Kitchen, is coming out in the UK on the 29th of September and available from all your favorite online and and uh, high street uh, shops. I will be um, announcing my book tour, which will go from the Hebrides all the way to London um, very soon as well. So check that out. And for those of you overseas, the book will be released in the US, Canada and Australia on the 24th of January. Wow. Amazing. Brilliant. And you knew all that. That's fantastic. I wouldn't have had a clue when it was coming out. (laughs) 
Well, listen, when you're on your book tour or even before, if you find yourself in Speyside or Murrayshire, give me a shout. I would love to cook you something from my cooker and have a further natter with you. In the meantime, enjoy your travels and um, have an amazing time over in the States. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Tim. It's been it's been a great hour. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I'm delighted to have chatted to you, and uh, I, I hope this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. But for now, um, you'll have to give us the Gaelic for fare thee well. Marshin Lowth, Chirian Rasta. Oh my goodness! <laughs> All right, I'm going to stick with Toodle Pip. But have a great day, and we'll see you soon. Cheers. <laughs>